Welcome to the online teaching ministry of Dry Run Baptist Church. For more content, visit us online at dryrunbaptist.org. Good morning and welcome to church. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is where we'll be today. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You know, we went by it the other day and he didn't even make a sound. Years ago, when our biggest little boy used to hear or see the train tracks, he would go completely wild. We have videos of him in which that he is losing his mind, squealing with delight when we passed a train or when we, you can YouTube it, right? And there's like an hour and 15 minutes of a guy going by train tracks and videoing different color sizes and shapes of trains. And yet in this video, he would jump and squeal and go completely wild but the other day we passed it and he didn't even make a sound and why is that the case there was a point in time in his life where trains were the primary entertainment for him seeing them or playing with them what is the funnest thing that he got to do? And yet, since then, there have been other things that move into his life in which that now he's got way more toys than any human being could have ever imagined in a million lifetimes. So he doesn't really get to the trains like he used to. Not only that, but we drive in this town by the train tracks all the time. So he's been by there a million times. So he's kind of used to it. He's used to it, and he's got all kinds of other things to trap his attention and his imagination. And why, my friends, are we talking about trains, planes, and automobiles? Why are we doing that? Because I fear for us that God is a whole lot like trains. In which there was a point in time in our life when we experienced God. And that he may have been the controlling interest in the primary thought and focus of our entire life. But then... Other things come in. And not just that, but we've gotten potentially used to God. We've gotten used to approaching Him, used to talking to Him, and used to not living out the commitments that we've made to Him. What used to excite us now 
is far from our minds. And I say all of that because of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, in which that Solomon is showing us that under the sun or apart from God, everything is vanity, meaningless, smoke, mist, vapor. And then he turns his attention here in chapter 5 to this. There ought not to be any vanity, meaninglessness approaching God. Put it another way, there is no smoking in church. None of that smoke or vapor ought to be aimed at how we approach God. No meaninglessness, vanity, futility when it comes to the Almighty. So he helps us by showing us three ways to not approach God in a meaningless way. If you wouldn't mind to stand in the honor of the reading of the word of the Lord, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 is where we are today. Here's what he says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near is to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. Do not be rash with your mouths, with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. But when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let's pray. Father, you are the one that we must fear. So I pray that awe and reverence will be brought about in the hearts of your people, that we would not approach you in a flippant, lighthearted way. Do this work in us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You all can be seated. So as he surveys life as we know it, He continues over and over again to tell us that there is not meaning outside of God. There is not meaning apart from God. There is no smoke (laughs) that ought to be vapor, ought to be in the way that we approach God. So here's his main point. We must be careful that you don't approach God casually. Be careful that you don't approach God casually. So as we look at the text, you'll notice, to kind of get our bearings on it, that there are three people in this verse. The first being God. And he's mentioned six times. The second person is the fool. And the third person is you, who he's talking to that should guard yourself from being a fool in the presence of God. Those are the three people. He cautions us. But in this culture, 
we shouldn't assume anything about the text of Scripture that we're looking at. So here is the premise in which that we have to understand this before we go forward in the text, and that is this. God is the one whom we ought to be approaching. God is worth approaching. God is the one worthy of worship. And we understand this when we open our Bibles to the very first page in which that everything that happens after that fits into the framework of this. In the beginning, God. Everything finds its meaning, purpose, aim, relevance, activity within him. That's what happens. And in those days, Solomon is telling us that we ought to guard our our feet, our steps, when we approach God. And it's important to remember that in those days, there was a house in which God was to be approached, and they would sacrifice animals on behalf of the sins of the people or in worship to God, and they would teach. However, in the New Testament, God is not in a building. But God is now in the hearts of the believers of whom he is making a building. Right? He is building a body of people to, that which houses his spirit. And that is now the house of the Lord, the body of believers. However, so how do we guard our steps when we go to the house of the Lord when in reality now we are that? How does this transfer for us? Well, one of the ways in which it transfers for us is that there are set times that the Scripture prescribes for us to avoid all distraction and focus in on the Lord. There are times supposed to be set aside for worship. Now, you ought to walk with the Lord all day long. You ought to be praying without ceasing, right? To constantly be offering up prayer. But let's be honest. There has to be a time in your day preferably before it begins, in which that you block out all distraction and approach the Lord. Prepare yourself for the day and everything that comes. That is how we approach God. Another way. We set this time in this space aside with this group of people to approach God as a group in the assembly of believers. That's what we do. We have set this time aside for that special purpose of the people of God gathering on the day of the Son of God to hear from the Word of God to the glory of God. That's what we've done with this time right now. 
So in both of those times, we, according to this passage, should not approach God casually. Instead, we should be careful how we come to God. I'll read that in verse 1. He says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know what they are, that they are doing evil. So he's telling us, taking in truth, so how do, how do we guard our steps? What does that look like when we're guarding our steps when we go to focus on God every week in the body of believers or and every day with our Bible open in prayer? What does it look like? Well, he tells you and he elaborates there in verse 1, to draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So listening, receiving, is better than mindless religious activity. To receive from God is better than to do for God without your heart in it. That's what he tells you. How do you guard your steps? Realize that you've come here today primarily to receive from the Lord and to get, we know, and to give to the Lord worship, honor, glory that is due him. But even you know that you can't do that unless you first receive from him. It's returning. That's what it is. It's returning on his investment. You don't come to, to bring him something today. You can return with the breath, the, the life that he's given. But he is the initiator. So we've got to be careful how we do what we're doing here today. <clears throat> Michael Scott from the office says, sometimes I start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. I just kind of hope to find it along the way. That is not what we ought to do in here. Like that we're doing a religious activity and then some point in time, something that we got to do in here lands on the God of the Bible. Or something, some kind of mindless activity that we're doing here, eventually something's going to click and it's going to work, right? Like we'll just find it out along the way and, and, and it'll be genuine and it'll be heartfelt and it'll be authentic. Surely at some point it'll turn into that, won't it? No. No. According to Solomon, his principle here would that you ought to be careful how you set your mind on God, and it's better that you know him and you receive from him than you do things for him. That's what he's saying here. According to the rest of verse 1, there are people who can approach God like a fool, and they're not careful how they come to him, and they're ev doing evil, and they don't even know they're doing evil. Like, that's even worse. Why are they foolish? It's one thing to do evil and to know that you're doing evil, but when you're approaching God in a vain way, meaninglessness, you're just doing things without it being from your heart and making it matter with substance, it's foolish, and it's the worst kind of evil, the evil that you don't even know is evil. That's the worst thing about it. Now, there, are, there is real evil in our world that we think about, talk about, focus on. We think of the 
taking of, of innocent lives. Anytime that happens, that that is evil. We think of things like the, the abortion of, of, of the unborn, that that's evil. We think of the neglect of, of the poor and that that's evil. Those things are evil, clearly. However, have you ever thought about how you coming into a place like this with the biblically described moment of assembling with believers and doing so half-heartedly, that is evil. That is evil. That's evil. Have you thought about opening your Bible with your mind on a million other things in a moment set aside for the approaching of the Lord and then you get distracted on Facebook or the newspaper or with your laundry list of things to do in that day and your heart goes away to those things that that is evil. Abortion and neglect of the poor and unjust wars. Evil. But according to verse 1, approaching God in a very casual way when you come to Him with foolish religious activity, that's evil. The problem is you might not even know. You might not even know that it's evil. What do you do? Verse 1 even has that in there. Listen. Listen. How do you guard your steps? You listen. You receive from the Lord. You draw near and you listen. Your focus is on your receiving, your listening. So you gather with God's people today because you realize your need. Tomorrow when you crack your Bible open before anything else happens, you realize your need. He has no need of you to give him anything today. You don't come into a needy God who's flippantly jealous because you're not meeting his needs today. No. That's not what happens. You come needing to receive to draw near, to listen. It's way better than going on with foolish, half-hearted, wicked activity, according to verse 1. So, you receive from Him. You don't just come from Him any way you like. Come to Him any way you like. So we're careful how we come to God. And we're careful how we communicate with God. In verses 2 and 3, look at what he says. Be not rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in the heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Let your words be few. So you come to God in the church body today where you wake up tomorrow and you set aside your thoughts on him 
And Solomon tra- transitions here from verse 1 to verse 2 for you watching your feet to you watching your mouth. And I am a type of guy that will start a sentence and not know where it's going to go and find it on the way. And I hope I just don't do it with my Bible open behind the pulpit because that would be dangerous for all of us. But here's, here's the danger, a real danger for me in verse 2. It's just saying things quickly. Because I don't know about you, but I struggle with silence. I'm someone who adapts to the room. If you're a talker, I'll be quiet and listen. If you're quiet, I'll fill it. That's just what I am. I'll adapt to whatever room I'm in. I'll be whatever necessary. That's what I do. But what we see here in verse 2 is that there is silence that it's okay to be silent about. My wife uh, is at home still healing up from her labor and C-section. And she... They, they gave her the, the epidurals and stuff like that, and they didn't work, so she's in a lot of pain, so she's in, endured a lot of things. But let me tell you one of the worst things that she endured. Me. Because I'm, I'm there, like, next to her, and she's in 10 to 12 hours of labor, 10 to 12 hours with me next to her, and, like, what do you say in a moment like this? There's silence, really, for some times. And what do you say? I don't know, and I wish somebody had told me before I went in there. But it's a little too late to give me advice on that. But there was silence, so I just kept feeling it. So, like, she's in excruciating pain and trying to have the baby. And I I told you last week when our little boy won the uh, Paw Patrol Sorry that he pumped his fist and he said, Hooray for justice! Well... She's there giving birth, and I tried it right then and there. I didn't know what to say, so I was like, hooray for justice. She did not think that was funny one bit, and it was not the appropriate thing to say. She was kind and gentle even then. It didn't fault me on telling her hooray for for justice when she was like trying to push the baby out. (laughs) But I, I, I don't know. Like I... She had to endure because I was just filling the void. I was just filling it. However, there are voids before God in which that you don't always have to say something before Him. Don't talk quickly before God. Don't do it. Don't do it like that. Solomon here is talking about a practice that we seldom do. Sit in silence before the Lord. When's the last time that you or I ever did that? We always think that we should be doing something or that we should be saying something. Solomon would caution us to be careful how we talk to God. To be careful how we talk to God. Here's why, because of the rest of verse 2. Because God is in heaven... And you are on earth. So let, therefore, let your words be few. The reason you be careful is because God is who he is and you are who you are. He's telling us two things in the verse that we should know. 
First, who God is. is. Kind of breaks the theme of, of the book, right? The life under the sun apart from God. He's talking about life like that. It's pretty dark and gloomy down here, but for a moment he lifts our eyes above the sun to tell us that God is in heaven and you're on earth. He's up there. You're down here. There is a God above the sun and you are to approach him carefully in the way you come to him and carefully in the way you communicate with him. Now, here's why we're not careful like this. Because we don't sit and meditate in silence and think about who God is. That's why John Calvin starts his systematic theology, the Institutes of Christian Religion. He starts it with this focus, saying, Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Meaning, you'll feel pretty good about yourself and how big you are and how smart you are and how wonderful you are as long as you never put yourself in comparison to a holy God. Solomon's telling us to make that contrast. Why don't you be rash with your mouth and be hasty with your heart in the way you come and approach him and communicate with him? Because he's in heaven and you're not. You see this in the book of Job, in which there was this man who lost most all that he ever had at some point. And as you, you see the progression of the book, he says he's being confronted by these three fools that keep talking and filling space when they, there should be silence. It's a theme, right? And what does Job say at one point in the book? He says, for he, for he, he's going to try his case to the Almighty. And he says, when he tests me, I'm going to come out like gold. That's Job earlier on. Well, guess what? God shows up. What does Job do when God shows up? Does he go, okay, I've been waiting a long time to set you straight. I, I am going to, I'm going to, ooh, when he comes, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to ask him why life is like it is and why somebody as good as me is having to deal with stuff as bad as this. Is that what Job does when God shows up? Is that what he does? No, that's not what he does. Because we know people, right, who are thinking along those lines right now, right? Like, God has messed up this situation up and I can't wait to ask him why. I can't wait for him to answer all my questions. I can't wait for him to do all these things for me. No, that's not what happens when God shows up at all. Job chapter 40, verse 4, he says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So what happens when God shows up in the book of Job? To Job, he realizes how small he is and how silent he ought to be in his presence. Oh, God, if we were like that, Thank you 
for this in the scriptures that we see how big you are and how small we ought to we are and how silent we ought to be in your presence. You see Job talking about what Solomon tells us here that you got to be careful how you communicate with God. He says God's in heaven and you're on earth. So let your words be few because your feet don't fit the throne. Only his do. Now, there is a way, and Solomon tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, that when he, he asks this question, who is able to build a house for you? For even the highest of heavens cannot contain you. Right? He's not saying that God is only in heaven and, and you're here on earth. No. He's saying he transcends the heavens. Psalm 113 asks the question, Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? He's talking about the transcendence of God, that he is above and beyond us, that the heaven of the highest heavens cannot contain him. He's in heaven and you're on earth. Don't stroll casually into his presence. Talk quickly before him. In fact, verse 3 says, just like there's a lot of stuff going on in dreams, there's a lot of words coming out of the mouth of fools. And that's not what we want to do or be before God. Remember, he's not like you. God is not like you. And that there is, at, and there is a way in which there is distance between him and you. As, in other words, his feet fit the throne, like I said, and yours do not. God is in heaven, you're on earth, let your words be few. But we're reading, praise be to God, we're reading verses 2 and 3 like Christians. Because we know that God is in heaven, and we are on earth. But God became a man from heaven to earth to live the perfect life in the person of Jesus. And this gap and chasm that was between us that God himself has bridged in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so that God came from heaven to earth to live the perfect life, die on the cross for our sins and rise on the third day. And now we can pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit and still our words ought to be few. And why is that? Because he knows what you need before you even ask. As one commentator put it. But today, we cannot be casual in the way that we come to God or communicate with God. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. We're here on earth, so we ought to be careful about how we come to God, how we communicate with God, and how we commit to God. That's Solomon's third caution in verse 4. It starts. He says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. So what he's talking about here is why we should be careful what we say to God, because when we commit something, we'll be held accountable for the things that we say before God. 
We still make vows in the presence of God, by the way. We still make commitments in the presence of God, by the way. Let me give you one. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today in the presence of God and these witnesses to join this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Because of the one that we have said it before, we should honor our commitments that we've made, our vows that we've made. Do you, insert their name, take who, insert their name, to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold as long as you both shall live? I do. Do you? I do. Marriage is a vow that we make before God, a type of commitment we make before God that we should not enter into lightly. It should be upheld in honor, not just because God instituted marriage and he created it, one man, one woman for one lifetime, not just that he created it that way, but when we said that we'd be that one man or that one woman for that one man for one lifetime, that we've said those words before God who is listening. He will hold us to account for by our words, we will be judged. Every idle word he will bring into judgment, let alone things that we've promised in his presence. That's why our commitment in marriage is a, is something that ought to be guarded and fought for because of the promise we made before God. The commitment to our spouse that is to be honored. Verse 5 says it's better to not make it than if you're going to break it. Better not to make it if you're going to break it. The next verse he cautions us not letting our mouth lead us to sin. In the context, he's talking about a vow of commitment that we make and then we try to get out of it. We try to get out of a commitment that we made. That's, that's not how it, it ought to be. Right? Don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word for God. He's in heaven and you're not. Therefore, let your words be few. He says down into verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. So fools make these promises and commitments before God and, and don't keep them. Let not your mouth lead you to sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. This is someone who makes a commitment and then tries to back out of the said commitment, saying that I didn't really mean it like that. I didn't really mean it all the way. Right? Let's think about our commitments. Commit to our to first and foremost to God. When we become a, a Christian, we don't even really know what we're committing to in that, but we're hashing it out the rest of the way, just what we meant when we said, I'm sorry for my sin and I trust in you, I bank my whole life on you. That is a commitment made by the believer to the Lord, to trust in Him. We make those commitments. 
We're committed to God. We're committed to His body at a local level. That's what, we, that's what church membership is like. It's we're committing to. That's why we, we kind of make it a special thing. Committed to our spouse, our God, our church, our spouse. Committed to our kids. And what is he saying is foolish here? Negotiating the commitments. What is sin but a negotiation of a commitment? He's talking about sin here. Someone says that they will do this before God, and then they go, well, it's kind of, you know, it's complicated, isn't it? Isn't it complicated? What I said I would do, right? That's what Jesus was talking about. We read it earlier in Matthew 5. He's like, don't make oaths and make pledges about all this stuff you'll do. Just let your yes be yes. Anything further than that comes from the evil one. I said yes, I meant yes. That's how that ties into this. That's what he's saying here. Be careful how you commit to God and what you commit to do for God lest you'll be like this person in these verses and they try to negotiate their way out of it. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. What's at stake in negotiating one of those commitments before God? The judgment of God. Look there at the verse. He asked the question in verse 6, Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? We, gotta be, we can't casually come to God. We can't casually communicate with God. We can't casually commit to God. And then try to negotiate our commitment and get out of what we said we would do in the first place. Why? Because that brings about the anger of God. It matters how you approach God. It matters what you say to God. It matters commitments that you make. And what is sin but negotiating of commitments down trying to get out of what you said you would do and what is repentance but a fresh commitment to holiness repentance is a fresh commitment to turning from your sin trusting in the Lord to strengthen you to forsake your sin that's what repentance is That's what would happen in Jesus' day in Matthew chapter 23. He's talking about the hypocrites. They make oaths and swear by the temple. And then when someone calls them to account on what they said, they said, okay, I, I know I swore by the temple, but I didn't actually swear by the gold in the temple. Come on. If I swore by the gold in the temple, then it would matter, right? But it's not. I, I didn't say gold in the temple. Like I said it and I crossed my fingers and they were behind my back. So you can't fault me for not coming through on what I said I would do before the Lord or what I would give to the Lord. See how I'm okay? You see how I'm okay with that? Jesus is talking about judging 
people with that attitude in Matthew 23. They're trying to negotiate their religious commitments, similar to how we do it. That's what we do, isn't it? Yes, I am committed to Jesus, but yes, I am committed to his church, but yes, I'm committed to my spouse, but the yes, but is the dangerous negotiation of sin. That's what it is. That's what it is. He's saying don't negotiate your commitments before God. Don't do it. It doesn't work like that. Here's why. He words it like this in verse 6. We'll read it again. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one whom you must fear. God is angry at those who approach him casually, speak to him flippantly, commit to him half-heartedly. There's anger and destruction for those people. Or for us, depending on if we are those people. The issue of all of this is that you must and will stand before that God. So don't approach him casually like there's never going to be a day when you don't approach him for the judgment of you. That's what, the, that's what this ends with here. That we will and must stand before God and he is the one we must fear. It's a reality that we must come to grips with. He's not just someone to be approached, but he is someone who will scrutinize us. Do you notice how the Lord Jesus is unveiled and revealed in this text that we ought to be careful how we come to God? And the truth is that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is the one of which we can approach God through him. Because God is in the heavens and you're on the earth. The God is holy and you are not. Therefore, you need Jesus to be the way for you to God. That is what you need. So we're careful in how we do it. So we trust in the Lord Jesus because the gap between us and God, Jesus himself has bridged. So we're careful to come to God only through Jesus. The book of Hebrews starts like this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to us, to our fathers by the prophets, but then in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has spoken to us through his son. He's put away all of our sin through his son. And the only way to get to him is through his son. This God is in the heaven, you're on the earth. Let your words be few, but let those words say that I desire to turn from my sin and trust in 
the Lord Jesus. That is a God that you must approach and trust in his son. He's a God worth coming to. He's a a God worth communicating with. And he's a God worth committing to. This is a God who has communicated the magnitude of who he is through his son. So why would we negotiate our commitments elsewhere and otherwise? So what's the answer to our casual approach of God? What's the answer to this? What's what's the answer to, to boredom in the presence of God? Focus on other things. What's the answer to these things? The answer is the end of verse 7. It's what it is. God is the one you must fear. Let's put it like this. The cure or the antidote for apathy is all. The the, the antidote for apathy is all. He's the one you must fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, insight, instruction. The fear, awe, reverence, respect of the Lord. So how do you cultivate awe if that's the answer? If awe is the answer to your apathy, then how do you cultivate it? Well, be careful how you come to God. You don't approach Him casually. Be careful how you talk to God. Be careful how you commit to God. To use the train reference We've driven by it a hundred times. Drive by it every week to see the trains. I guess the answer would be to stop. By next time. To slow down. Be careful how we get to him, right? It's, it's the difference between your wife being your roommate and your wife being your wife because you can get used to her being in your house. But nobody wants that, right? So the danger with this is that the familiarity with these trains has bred apathy towards them, right? You drive by them a million times every week. But when have you, when's the last time that you stopped and you slowed down? You focused for a second. That's danger. When you take for granted what you have, it's even more dangerous when you take for granted the gods you have. It's even worse. So I say that we slow down. We focus. We ask him to show us afresh just how awesome he is. Because he hasn't changed and he's not any different. He's the same yesterday, 
today, forever. And the reason you might approach him casually is because you don't really know who you're walking up on to. So let's, let's focus on our receivings from him and not our givings, not our doings. Because fools do that. And ask him to cultivate awe in us that maybe we've never had before or that we used to have and now it's gone. Let's ask God for that together right now. Father, we give you praise for your majesty. We, we do say, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be made holy among us that you would give us fresh eyes on your holiness. That we wouldn't take for granted just passing through you in the scriptures every day. We pray that you would cure our apathy with awe. And that you would take this casual way that we approach you. You change us. Allow us to guard our steps when we approach your house. Be careful how we come to you, communicate and commit with you, to you. So Lord, I pray that in this room there would be fresh commitments to repentance for you are worthy of that. In Jesus' name, amen.